This is the Eat Before and Podcast with Paul Nobles and literally no one else today. Could not rope someone in to, to help me out. Um, pretty interesting uh, podcast, I think, that we're going to have this week because uh, we're going to be talking about a little bit more advanced concepts without trying to get too sciencey. Um, this actually came up with a thread that I posted yesterday because we have a few things that are coming out and so I'll, I'll talk about those first and then we'll get into the questions that came up as a result. So we are having um, a President's Day, um, a President's Day sign-up period that's going to be coming up so if you're not a Need to Perform member this is a great time to sign up. We do actually have a uh, new version of our app that's going to be coming out probably within a month or two that I think is going to really change the game for a lot of what we do and, and make things a lot a lot easier. And uh, we were doing a pretty serious investment in our, our tech team. And so we should I think everybody should expect that things are going to be kind of moving along relatively quick on that front. Uh, in terms of lifetime, we we only offer lifetime every six months or so. Um, a lot of people focus on the lifetime part, and uh, it, you know it's obviously a, a very expensive product for what we do. And as the membership gets more and more expensive, um, it makes it more difficult to offer this. And so we do have very attractive six month and one year options. Uh, people will often ask, well, you know, will I be grandfathered in at that price? Not necessarily because, you know, the reality is, is that's why it's a six month and one year option. And, and you know, it takes away from the value of the, the lifetime membership. So keep that in mind when you're making your decision. But we, we definitely get that, um, you know, the more care we give, the more expensive that care is. And unfortunately, that makes the product more desired and therefore the price is a little bit higher. Uh, so we have a new product also that we're going to be introducing here in the next couple months in their classes and what we're calling those classes building blocks and we're still sort of building out the, the concept but we've done a lot of legwork. Most of it is based off of a lot of the things that we've seen in the orientation group. So when I ask for feedback, a lot of the people that I was getting feedback from was really more um, advanced e perform concepts. And so that's what this podcast is going to be about. It's going to be about dressing some of those types of things. But the building blocks is going to be a little bit more about um, just the starting from the beginning so so I'll, I'll give you kind of the basic idea for most people that don't know um, I am sober I actually just recently celebrated my sobriety date um, of 31 years and I actually quit going to AA meetings not because I didn't find them uh, helpful but just because my life had sort of moved in a different direction. And frankly, I, I never really found a good home. Um, and so those meetings sort of, you know, didn't serve a purpose. And then part of the idea, of course, is that you you want to be supportive. And that was definitely something that, that you know, really um, 
was tough for me when I left because um, I wanted to be a mentor for the people that, you know, for the success that I had and people had given me. But the way that I kind of dealt with that in my mind, first of all, when I started A, I was 18 years old. So, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, oh, this could could have killed me. You know, I'm not 100% sure that uh, it wasn't just a phase that I needed to go through. But but that experience changed my life so fundamentally that, uh, you know, it, the thought of, of ruining what I was building was just something that I just didn't feel like needed to be done. But for me to to get to where I wanted to go, what I was finding was that the deeper connection that I was getting, you know, through my therapist, through my family, those things were actually defining who I was. And so when we think about building blocks, I don't want to kind of walk you guys through the, the process of, you know, eating normal. I want to walk you through the process of what your whole life is going to be like, right? And I view this as a way, an extension of community that is way different than than even like Weight Watchers meetings as an example. You know, Weight Watchers meetings, um, if you haven't been to them um, or experienced that, uh, a lot of the people that benefit from that often talk about the fact that you know, their regular people are the reason why they go to those meetings and, you know, it helps hold them accountable. But truthfully, the, you know, if you, if you read the feedback, what you'll often hear is that it sort of matters from coach to coach to coach. And so the leaders of, of our meetings, which will be these building block meetings and kind of give you kind of, kind of these step to step, you know, where we'll cover topics on sleep and then we'll cover topics on working out. And we're not going to always cover, you know, my macros or my weight or, or things of that nature because we feel like, you know, all of these things addressed in totality actually help the bigger picture and allow you to walk away from this situation with a much more whole approach, right? So really excited about that. They're going to be led by um, the Eat to Perform coaches that are not Brad and Paul and probably not Mike and April. It's really going to be all the other coaches that help us on a daily basis. And if you went through orientation recently, you know that Ed, Susie, Amber, those guys are doing a phenomenal job. What we're seeing on our side is that the people that are, are being moved over have a much better understanding of the concepts of Eat to Perform. And what we want to use is the knowledge that they brought to, to you guys at this point. Um, I can tell you right off the bat that uh, there's going to be some cool things there. Not only are we going to have multiple different meetings at multiple different times. Initially, we're going to start it off real small and then kind of build it out from there. But you will also, you know, the people that buy that service will have an ETP buddy, you know, and, and that'll be someone that went through the ETP certification course. And then uh, you'll be working on different little events probably within the community 
that allow for you to stay connected to the leaders of that meeting and then allow for, you know, if, for instance, 50 people, you know, had an action plan for that week, the coach might tag you into that event. And that way, everybody in that class can go, oh, that wasn't even something that I even considered might be an advantage for me. So maybe I'll look to do that. So really, another good way to kind of keep you guys connected outside of just, you know, what's going on into the ETP community page. And then hopefully we we plan on bringing some of that stuff into the app so it's a little bit easier and you can have it in your hand. Okay, so when I asked for questions, what ended up happening was people started bringing up all these kind of advanced or what I would consider advanced eat to perform concepts. And so I'm going to cover these things. Now, some of the things that people are talking about, literally you could do whole podcasts on them. So I'm not going to really do this service, right, um, in that way. But I think from the standpoint of kind of quick hitters, it'll be a really good thing. So one of the the first thing, the first question was goal specific training. So this is an interesting point because it comes up a lot in reviews. And so we'll see people that you know are five five female, 120 pounds, and just frustrated as all can be, you know, that that she has a muffin top and and can't figure out why all these people within each reform have abs and that she doesn't, right? And so when you look at the difference between you know that situation, the the answer is almost always within the training. And so in an instance like that, it's usually that person is doing way too much cardio and not enough bodybuilding. And one of the reasons why, and so as a result, they end up uh they end up kind of earning their food rather than using their food to build muscle. And so they're in this process of constant atrophy that can be really frustrating because a lot of those people actually do work out quite a bit. I mean, if you've ever been a marathon trainer, you know, and I mean, you know, it's funny because whenever you talk about runners, you know, there's people that are really sensitive. I definitely want to stop any thought process that I don't think that runners are like the most gangster people on the planet. Um, I have run long distances. I know how much it hurts. Um, but at the same time, if I was trying to get eight pack abs, you know, I'm not going to run. Now, there, there are runners that have physiques that a lot of people would like. Right, but there's not a lot of bodybuilders that are going to be training for marathons. So you you have to really kind of juxtapose what you want versus what you need. And so if you know you're eating a lot of food through eat to perform, and because you're wrapped up in your head about it, and you go out and you're constantly running 10 miles a day. You're really not using that food appropriately. Similarly, if you were on the opposite end of the spectrum and you just wanted to lift heavy all the time, but you know you were 300 pounds as an example, certainly a certain amount of cardio would be helpful in that situation, right? 
Um, even in that scenario, I think resistance training plays a really big role in that person seeing positive benefit. But I would say that a little bit more consciousness of cardio. One of the things that I see a lot, you know, and I, and I actually experienced this a lot with my personal journey is that, you know, when you're 259 pounds at, at 5'8", which is kind of interesting, right? Because I'm actually, you know, five nine and a half now. So literally, the weight that I was having was, was, was hurting my posture. It was hurting a lot of different things and lifting weights sort of helped some of that stuff. But you don't feel like walking 20,000 steps when you're, you know, 250 pounds, right? And so you have to kind of pace yourself I think there's a lot of people that, you know, I think I think we need to be talking about a lot of things. And this is a little bit of the whole building block concept, right? Is that everyone wants to get to where they want to go as quickly as possible. And frankly, you know, that is why they don't end up where they want to be. I think there was, you know, I had a personal client actually um well, there was two personal clients, and actually I was going to make a video about it, but this is a great time to talk about it. I have one client who, you know, is just a, a real joy to work with. I mean, they're both a real joy to work with. I mean, I, I, I you know, I love them deeply, but one of them needs more love from me than, than the other because they have a, a great deal of self-love. And the one is, you know, they're both women. Um, one is 225 pounds, and she's coming out of fat loss, and she's moving to recomp for various reasons. But she has a really healthy relationship with herself that allows her to kind of reach those goals. But, but the nice thing is, is that she has seen a certain amount of success, and so she feels like she can kind of piece things together. So, you know, because she has kind of that self-love and because, you know, she can kind of, and I know we're getting a little bit away from goal-specific training, but this has sort of led me down this path. If you don't love yourself, you're going to do the wrong kind of training. And so to me, you know, that that's going to be, you know, the person that I'm thinking of is a great example of someone that doesn't, do the wrong thing based on the level of care for themselves. So that's what led me down this thought process. Then we have somebody else who I think gets caught up in the same struggle that many of the people that fail get caught up in. Where they, and what's interesting about it is both of them are the same height, right? But the person struggling is actually weighs less than the person that's not struggling and has a great deal of self-love. Um, and we're working on the, the self-love piece with this other person. But the thing that is causing her to struggle is the fact that she views her goals as I need to lose X, right? Rather than focusing on more short-term goals. And this is the case with, you know, goal-specific training. I mean, a lot of people can, can beast mode it. But, you know, beast mode does have its limits. Will does have its limits. And so I would say that the second person that I'm talking about, you know, amongst a number of things, did sort of beast mode it up. 
kind of used up all of her will, got to a really good spot in that process, but didn't think that she got to a really good spot in that process. And that's when the wheels sort of fell off, right? And now she views the hole that she's in as much deeper. And that's the process that we're sort of working up with, with her, you know, joining group coaching. And it's really those incremental goals that make real big differences. And so, you know, when we talk about, you know, and, and, and I think the, the thing that we always need to kind of consider here is CrossFit, right, or, or any of these like high intensity protocols. Those are great as a piece of the puzzle, but they are not necessarily hypertrophy programming. I left the CrossFit gym that I used to go to because all of their wads became 20 to 30 minute wads, which frankly, that's what the customer base wanted. But at the end of the day, you're not going to build a lot of muscle in that process. And so you have to keep that in mind. And that's why we have our uh, muscle building protocols and uh, like a like an idiot, I just shut down my Facebook here. And so let me just pull that up here real quick. I think I do know what the next question was, but I want to make sure that I have everything in place while we're talking to you guys. So the next question was on nutrient timing. And this is something that is very popular in terms of you know a lot of starvation you know diet type of protocols now is there value to putting food around your workouts 100% there is right because you're going to be uh, you know more energized you're going to have natural energy reserves to draw from and you're not necessarily working just on stored energy for fuel at that point so certainly I actually find that more of a mixed meal fits better for me. Um, part of the question that the person was asking, you know, was trying to put carbohydrates around your workouts. So there's an interesting point about that. So in terms of, of, of loading of carbohydrates, really you're probably looking at almost a 24-hour period. So, so any of the carbohydrates that you're going to ingest – are going to really be more for acute energy levels at that moment, right? It's not going to be for long-term stuff. And so some of these ideas, I was kind of hoping, you know, unfortunately Brad wasn't going to be available. And frankly, if Brad was available, the topics would get that much longer because when you start going into the science of it all, it gets to be a little bit tricky. But in terms of nutrient loading, it really does take about 24 hours. I think most people actually benefit from being well-fed most of the time. Nutrient timing is a very popular topic because everyone is dieting all the time, right? And so if you're, let's say, eating 800 calories, certainly you should have more of your carbohydrates around your workouts because you're starving all the time. And so just to have the will to do anything, you know, you're going to want to put most of your energy around your workouts, right? But when we talk about what is the best way of doing things just to be the best human being possible, it's eating an amount of food that is consistent 
with what it would look like for the rest of your life and not always under eating all the time. And at that point, you don't really have to worry about uh, nutrient timing near as much. You know, I would argue that, you know, the effect of timing isn't really that big of a deal. And, and in fact, there's a lot of science that backs that up. I, I can't remember who everybody that was on the study. There's kind of this group of people that do studies like this a lot. Uh, but one of the people that stands out, I think two of the people actually, um, well, I might know three of the names. I think it was Alan Aragon, Brad Schoenfeld, and James Krieger. We have had Brad Schoenfeld on the Eat Perform podcast, I believe, twice. Um, and so if you want to go look back at that, you know, we, we kind of discussed some of these, these types of things. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, what they found, what they found was that the body mostly figures it out and that the timing isn't really all that beneficial. It becomes a little bit more beneficial as your nutrient needs are more acute. So let's say that you're an Olympian or something of that nature, that's when it becomes, you know, a little bit more valuable. But, you know, it's very popular within um, dieting protocols that are really super low, you know, that there's, there's, you know, more advantage. And of course, there's more advantage when you're starving and you eat, right? You feel a little bit more energetic. You're not as fatigued. And so that would be some of the very small benefit. But in terms of fat loss overall and the value of nutrient timing from that perspective, very little. So fat loss 101. So that's a little bit of what we will be talking about with building blocks. Um, but I think it's an interesting concept in how simplistic it is related to how difficult people think it is, right? So the way that people want to do it is they want to start off. And so I'm, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to sort of use these avatars for situations that I think are very common. And then you can sort of, you know, come to your own conclusions from there. So most people would actually prefer to lose weight without exercising, right? And uh, I, let, let's go starting there. So this is actually similar to my history. Whenever I tried to exercise and eat less, I found myself fatigued. And so I came to the conclusion very early on that working out was not going to be great for my fat loss goals. I actually found that. Um, I got more results in terms of weight loss. Now, that's an interesting point um, when I wasn't working out. But in terms of fat loss, you know, I would kind of end up with this sort of skinny fat look. And, you know, more often than not, I was just basically dehydrating my muscle or, or actually atrophying in that process because I just wasn't giving my body enough nutrients to kind of thrive. So then of course you do things you know similar to what I just said where you do some combination of eating less and then moving more, right? And the problem with this is that 
your body does adapt to all of this very easy. And we're going to actually get to that part um, in one of the, the later questions. But your body is always figuring out what you're doing. So you always have to make changes. And so what ends up happening is you're under eating more. You're constantly doing more. And this is where some of the dysfunctions where people start losing their hair and their nails become brittle and hypothyroid and men start start struggling with um, uh, you know um, erection issues, things of that nature. Not, I was trying to think of a nice way um, to say that, but uh, there's an acronym and it, it's escaping me at the moment. So then... We look at kind of the eat and form way of doing things, right? Where you're just sort of nibbling at the success rather than trying to take big chunks. And and one of the problems with big chunks that definitely needs to be mentioned and is actually the reason why a lot of people diet their way to obesity is that the lower you go, the more extreme you go, some of your body's natural processes as it relates to your hormones and things of this nature become compromised and actually you get to a point where you're go from like nutrient sensitive or nutrient sensitive or insulin sensitive to actually being resistant as you go too low and that's where you get to kind of the dysfunction point most people think of you know insulin resistance in general as kind of a type 2 type 2 diabetes high level thing but they don't realize that it actually works the other way and more often than not, you're the one choosing it. So then we look at the eat and form way of doing things is where you're not going so extreme where you're just kind of kind of nibbling at it most of the time. You're holding on to muscle most of the time. Your performance actually improves in the process. But of course, it's not like the pull the band-aid off thing, right? Now, there are people that certainly have success uh, with extreme dieting, but the statistics show that the people that do that are very low. Now, there, in terms of the people that have success with any form of dieting, um, is also very low. And part of the reason for that is just that adherence becomes very difficult when the expectation of result doesn't happen. So if the expectation of results, kind of similar to what we talked about with the two scenarios earlier, when the expectation of result is 50 pounds and you lose 30 pounds, I can tell you one thing because, you know, it was my experience and I think many of you guys can relate to this, that that's the quickest path to, to not only gain that 50 pounds, right, but, but actually go further than that. And so that would be something that I think people really need to think about and why we are really trying to get you guys to um, have both tools. You know, in a lot of ways, you know, when you're under eating and you're over exercising, you're actually, it's, it's like, it's like using a hammer and a screwdriver to, to kind of work at the same time. And then at the same time you're using them, they're becoming more and more worn down. Whereas with the eat perform approach, you're having these tools that actually become more effective. And so you see these people with these graphs that, you know, go down very slowly over time, 
but they end up losing, you know, 50, 60, 100 pounds in a very reasonable amount of time, right? So you might lose 40 pounds in six months, but then the minute you start eating normal, you know, you're going to be at risk of gaining it all back with the way that we do it with Eat to Perform. We're constantly moving your calories and constantly having you fight. One of the biggest myths in the whole industry, you know, is this idea of abs are made in the kitchen. And that is incorrect. And that is the basis for Fat Loss 101. What we are saying is that you have a high level of control over what you do and how you do it. And it's the timeline that is killing everyone. And it's the expectation that is killing everyone. And so um, I think to describe Fat Loss 101 with Eat to Perform, it's really kind of slowing down the process, allowing the client to be more in control than they were before. Because if you think about the first scenario where I was talking about, that person does not feel very in control when the low calorie approach no longer works, right? But when you look at the way that we do it, and let's say that you came from a cardio approach and you start eating, now all of a sudden your cardio starts to get better. The tools actually are enhanced rather than decreased when you're constantly decreasing food. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't have periods where you might be at a deficit, but in all scenarios, you would be in control. The last thing I do want to say about that, though, is that, and, and this relates to the two other topics that we've talked about up to this point, I think that there has to be periods where you can allow yourself to not be beast mode, right? And that goes within periods where you might be in a fat loss phase or it's also in a period where um, you are in a little bit more of kind of like a recomp phase, right? I think that uh, the in the scenarios that I talk about where, where calories or under eating and moving – in both those scenarios, you are probably losing muscle. In the scenario with Eat to Perform, you are holding on to a lot of muscle. Now, even, you know, sometimes, of course, you know, if you're you're not eating to the level of your activity, there's always going to be a little bit of muscle loss in that process. But, you know, when you are well fed, when you have resistance training in place, you are at much less risk of losing muscle in that scenario and therefore you lose more fat effectively. This is why so many people go, man, I've only lost 20 pounds, but my friends and family can't stop talking about all the success I'm having. That's why. Because, you know, I think most of us can relate. I remember a time, and I can't remember the year, but I think it was 2017, where I had... I'm, not 2017. Um, I think it was 2000, 2007, maybe? Um, yeah, 2007. And um, I was at the World Series of Poker. I couldn't play because I, I wasn't sleeping very well. I was eating mostly low-carb at that point. Um, wasn't as educated as, as I later on became. Um, and 
lost, I think, 70 pounds, but just looked like a lot of loose skin, um, did not look fit, you know, and people were very concerned, you know. I mean, I actually had a friend of mine ask me if I had cancer um, because he was just that concerned of the level of extreme that I went and and, you know, I actually consider that time, the end of that time, the beginning of, of my journey because I, I I'd sort of figured out some of the pieces. I think one of the things that we don't get a lot of credit for with Eat to Perform is that our low days do take into account that, you know, some periods of, of lower is going to be, be positive. Okay, so we've covered that probably a little bit longer than it needed to be covered, but I just wanted to end on this note that if you're in fat loss or if you're in recomp, you are still in fat loss, right? Because you are still, if you're trying to maintain your weight for the most part or even grow, grow gradually, your goal there is to hold on to muscle. That is something that really not a lot of people except, you know, sports nutritionists can really claim. And so that's something that I think is is real special that we bring to a mass market. So Christine was asking science behind the runway. So I'm going to get into actually the concept of homeostasis, which is, you know, a question that came up down the line. And we're already getting to the point where um, things are going a, a little long. And uh, be because, you know, one of the reasons why I like doing the podcast with uh, with other people is that it allows you to have kind of a mental break. It's very hard doing this without someone to kind of riff off of. So I apologize if I get a little long-winded in that instance. Uh, in terms of uh, homeostasis, okay, so this is a direct relationship to Christine's question with the science behind the runway. So, and it, it's also in direct relation to everything that we've talked about up to this point because homeostasis is also gonna play a role in your training. So basically the way it works is anything that you do, so so I thought of a good way to describe it actually earlier and, and um, in a lot of ways, you know, the current opioid crisis is a great um, metaphor for this idea, right? Where um, you have all these people that go and get prescribed medication for pain. And I think you could look at dieting very similarly. I think you could look at muscle building very similarly. That as you start to take it, your body starts to adjust to it. And that is the basis for homeostasis. So if you want more effect, you're going to have to change the stimulus, right? And this is why people are constantly getting their medication increased and struggle coming off of it because, you know, their body becomes sort of dependent to that. I would argue that there is a very direct correlation between dieting and the opioid crisis, right? Because you you have eating disorders to a level 
that has not been seen up to this point, right? Certainly before the introduction of Weight Watchers, there were there was people focused on fitness. There was people focused on health. But that introduction of dieting really changed who we are fundamentally as human beings. What we know for a fact is that when people undereat, their self-esteem issues become higher, right? The, when you're not feeding your brain properly, you're going to struggle with some, some, some basic chemical you know, connections that need to be made, right? Th these are all, you know, when I was spending all my time sort of researching the concepts for Eat to Perform, these were all the things that I was studying that science, it's well known all of these things. But the problem is, is that it's a really tough, it's a very difficult thing to explain to someone the concepts of gradual success when they look in the mirror and they're not completely whole for a lot of reasons, right? Like I mentioned earlier, you know, there's, you know, one of the greatest accomplishments that I think that we have is that we have athletes, you know, that are females that are, you know, 240 pounds or males that are 285 pounds that actually are okay and understand that constantly dieting, you know, isn't going to be positive for them. That occasional and actually prolonged dieting breaks where they're focused more on performance not only is helpful, but it's actually going to allow them to be more successful over time and more sustainable over time. And that, you know, that is well documented within science, right? That, you know, the, the, the more extreme you go, the, the more dysfunction is caused, right? And so that, that would be real similar to, you know, the, the, the opioid, you know, epidemic that's going on. And I, I would, I would say that the same thing is really happening, um, where there's a lot of people that are just trying to lose a little bit of weight and they get caught up into this whole idea of kind of messing with their brain chemistry that doesn't end up being positive, right? And so the concept of homeostasis is that the body is going to adjust and it's going to adapt. And some of that ad adaptation is actually kind of negative, right? And, you know, that's where you start to see these thyroid dysfunctions and all the things that, that happen when the body is starting to make those adjustments. So, Let's look at it the opposite way, right? So the body is, is, is becoming more dysfunctional as you go down. So one of the biggest misconceptions is that as you add food, that you're going to naturally gain weight and that you're going to naturally store fat. It's very common. Um, I, I mean, I don't mean to make light of it, but there was a review yesterday where someone was making a connection that on their home scale, it showed from day to day that they gained three pounds of fat. Now, from a physiological standpoint, I'm not going to say that that's completely impossible, but that's pretty much impossible to do. The body does not store fat like that, right? You're really talking about 
more hydration issues, right? That's how those scales work. So if you're not properly hydrated, it's not going to really give you the correct reading. There's also standard deviation in place, right? And so, you know, when you look at uh, at home scale, it's not going to give you near as good a reading as something like a DEXA scan that you have to lay there for 30 minutes. So the standard deviation might be close to 5%. Well, his three pounds, you know, or um, yeah, so three pounds of fat is well within that standard deviation. But if you're kind of new to all these concepts, it's sort of difficult to, to wrap your head around it, right? And let's be real, no one gives themselves enough credit when the scale shows them the positive and they feel like things always need to be moving in in a downward direction, or at least that's where the trend should be heading. But at the end of the day, the reason why we focus on trends is because we want to manipulate your weight, body fat, training, muscle, all these different things so that your body actually uses homeostasis. And so when we look at your body trying to find balance, you definitely want to find balance at a much higher calorie point, right? Because let's look at what your body responds to. Gradually, as an example, you're going to become more resistant to medication and therefore you're going to have to take more of it. The same thing would be said with weightlifting as an example. You're going to have to progressively overload the muscle various ways to get a response. In terms of food, for you to get leaner, you're going to have to kind of push the food side of things and potentially the training side of things as it relates to your goals. So when Christine asks, why is the runway important? Because the runway manipulates your body's natural instincts for homeostasis so that it finds balance, and then we can use that balance drastically with a fat loss phase. Like as an example, um, one of the ideas that I think that that we've covered really well that I would say our data backs up really strongly is that your body finds balance when it's close, right? So let me give you an example of what I mean. So let's say that you have someone and they're 500 club and, and it's a 115 pound female and that 500 club person uh, gets her calories you know, lowered to 409. Naturally, you would think, wow, you know, that's a, that's a pretty substantial um, reduction in calories. In reality is it's not. And then the processes within your body, like your metabolism, as an example, is largely affected by how much you eat and how much you do right? But digestion plays a big role. So someone that is digesting 539 calories of carbohydrates or 3,000 calories of food, um, 
or 539 grams of, of carbohydrates, then what would end up happening is their metabolism is going to thrive at that point. So you would say, well, wouldn't you know someone losing calories like that respond really well? What we see is that that's too close, that it needs to be much more drastic. So there's, you know, the people that have those runways, when you bring their calories down, yes, they don't have to go down to the really super drastic numbers because they've used the homeostasis, right? They've got their balance to a much higher point. But if you take, I mean, the best way to say this, and I, I know this some people hate this because, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, it feels like I'm kind of all over the place and, and I'm totally all over the place. But once Adam Carolla said, you know, if you talk to anybody who's making, you know, 500000 a year, most of them are happy. The only person that wouldn't be happy is a person that made $2 million the year before that, right? So when you take someone who is at 539 grams of carbohydrates, let's say 3,200 calories and you bring that person down to let's say 2000 calories and let's say 269 grams of carbohydrates you know a lot of people wouldn't find that kind of deficit to be that difficult the person that's eating 539 grams of carbs would the person that's eating 3200 would but it is that kind of extreme that allows for that more extreme adjustment and we've not really seen a lot of outliers. You know, a lot of the times people will say, what about age? I have many athletes that are 60s and 70s that are 500 club, right? High 400 club. And their adjustment in terms of weight going up is almost nil, right? The body does respond to that really well. Now, does the body respond really well to those people coming down? It really depends on their history of dieting. It depends on the things that they do. I would say similar to what we were talking about earlier, if you know, you're just running, as an example, to kind of get your 539 grams of carbs and 3,200 calories, and you go down to... 269 guess what's going to happen with your running you know you're not going to feel like running and if you do push it you may push your cortisol levels to to a point where you know you're going to be dealing with more fatigue than it's going to be healthy right so um, those are some considerations that when you think about you know, fat loss and sort of manipulating what you're trying to do to get a specific result. It's that level of trial and error that you're really playing with. What I can tell you definitively from what we know is that, and this was actually, I think, one of the questions that was asked, um, you know, what do we know in, in terms of data? What I can tell you in terms of data is that the people that are able to go through both phases of the the um, you know fat loss stages, right, the full sixty four days, that if you're a female in four hundred club, or let's say that you're a male, you know mid five hundreds, 
those people do not struggle losing 10 to 15 pounds. Um, what we will often see with those people, though, is that they'll lose 10 pounds and go, okay, I've got it, and then, you know, not do the second phase. And I would argue that I'd almost rather see most of those people go through the second phase and get the full 15 rather than stopping. You know, it, it's dependent on the person. I mean, I, I think that the piece that you start to struggle with from from our standpoint is that if you have someone that doesn't have a life circumstance that sets up really well, then you, you're going to counsel them to, you know, kind of go back to normal. The problem that you run into, though, is how normal, how quickly, right? Because what ends up happening is it sets up this kind of mental scenario. There's a lot of people that think to themselves, the, the only time I'm losing weight is when my calories are low, and the only time that, that I'm gaining weight is when my calories are higher. Well, of course, right? I mean, that's sort of how the body works, but there's degrees in that. I would argue that it's actually the reverse, that, that the more you're approaching that runway side of things, the more success you're going to have on the other piece. And so if you never get to that point, it's going to be very difficult to get to that, that in, in goal. What we will see, and this sort of relates to kind of the fat loss 101 section, you know, uh, is that there is sort of this sweet spot that a lot of people are able to find where they have more success in, in recomp, where they're just really pushing that runway. And, you know, through the process, we kind of move them up much slower than maybe we would have in the past, right? One of the things that we we learned from the past was just the amount of foods that 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 people could get away with. That's allowed us to kind of tweak that to get a more specific result. But the thing that we've always known is that the people that really push the activity side of things you know, now you run into burnout issues, but when you push the activity side of things and you are well fed, you can actually see much more success in terms of weight loss and, and, and fat loss. But you kind of use that trump card. That's the basis for homeostasis, right? Your body is going to adjust to those extremes and then you're going to struggle. So now you have to sort of change a piece and... You know, that's when a lot of those folks start to get a little frustrated, right? Because, you know, they lost a lot of weight. You know, like a great example would be, let's say that you're a female and you started at 210. And, you know, you didn't have a whole lot of discipline. You were, you know, eating to perform, but kind of, kind of 
making some choices that I wouldn't necessarily say we would recommend. You know, you, we would really recommend kind of more of a whole food approach and, and, and things of that nature. But you're actually able to get away with it because you've got a lot of energy. You weren't working out near as much as, 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 as you probably have. But now with this energy, your workouts are more effective. You're building more muscle. Metabolism's going up. All these fine things, right? So now all of a sudden that person goes down to 170 pounds and calories are the same, workouts are the same, and they're frustrated because they can't keep making that progress, right? So at that point, they have a couple options, right? Do you then take your workouts from three hours a day to six hour days? The problem that you run into at that point is that as your body is starting to adjust up or down, whatever it is, it takes more extreme to get less result, right? So what that person might find would be that they would have to then work six hours, work out six hours. And this has a high correlation to um, some of the things that I found in, in my weight loss. You know, I, I've talked about this in the past. You know, um, while performance was a very big part of, you know, my progress, you know, I did kind of, you know, burn the candle at both ends. And, I, you know, I would start with, you know, one hours. And then I, you know, quickly moved to two hours once I started to see some benefit from that. And I'm eating relatively, you know, loosely at that point, similar to the way that I used to and still seeing a result. So this is awesome. Then all of a sudden, you know, you lose 20 pounds. And then you like, well, you stall. And you're already working out two hours, so you think to yourself, well, okay, you know, maybe spaghetti and meatballs isn't going to be the best choice for me. So you tighten that piece up. Then the body adjusts to that piece, right? So now all of a sudden you find yourself, and this was my exact scenario, where I'm doing two-a-days. Hold on one second, you guys. My computer went into sleep mode. You're doing two-a-days. You're working out four to five hours a day. At that time, I had the the freedom of time. You know, this was before Eat to Perform and before doing, you know, a thousand reviews a day and things of this nature. But then all of a sudden you go, well, okay, what's the answer to some of this? And that's when, you know, from that standpoint, I really started to focus a little bit more on the muscle building side of things. So at every single point, I gradually changed what I was doing for a much better approach. And I would argue that for the next 10 to 15 years, I'll continue to do that. What I did definitely find out, and all of this, of course, is directly related to homeostasis, um, but also kind of mental freedom is if you... As we age, right, the bang for the buck isn't as good, right? It's harder to recover. Um, all of the advantages of your youth kind of go away. So then what you have to kind of make peace with yourself and this sort of the self-love piece that I was talking about. And this podcast has already gone really super long and it's very difficult for me to kind of carry this alone. So, you know, I, I do apologize for kind of being all over, but... I feel like this has gone really well. But I think that 
a lot of the people that burn in the candle at both ends in their 20s and 30s and that are seeing a really good result probably are going to find something similar to what I found that, you know, more muscle building, some cardio, occasional, occasional hit with a relatively reasonable approach to food is going to be kind of better. And long periods of really not seeing major progress. You know, when you're kind of 10 years into this game, like I am, you have to be okay with long periods. You know, I've talked about this. It's been probably four years since I've done a fat loss phase. And in that process, my weight has certainly gone up. But what else has gone up? My gaining of muscle. Have I put on some fat in that process? Absolutely, I have. But it's that obsessive kind of nature. You know, early on, I had a much more obsessive approach to I kind of want to get there. And even though my approach was much better and I was researching along the way and kind of figuring things out and it took, you know, roughly two years, you know, I used to say all the time, and and and, and this is sort of what we were talking about with homeostasis and talking about with runway, people would ask me what would be the thing that I would change. And the thing that I would change would be how long I would do it, right? And the reason why, how long I would do it, because I would have periods like I'm in now, right? What a lot of people don't realize, you know, I eat roughly about 3,500 calories a day at what I would say is not an extreme activity level. I'm not getting, you know, 20,000 steps a day. I'm not training for marathons. I'm not doing tough mutters. I'm not doing CrossFit six days a week. So what people don't realize is that their calories actually are supposed to be relatively high. And, you know, if you can be a little comfortable with the scale going up and you can kind of have that self-love piece in place and you can say, well, you know, the most successful, I mean, one thing that I can tell you for a fact, right, is that the people that react to the scale in a panic mode are the people that have the least success. The people that have the most success plan their fat loss phases, work it in stages, they pre-log their meals, right? They work towards a goal. They have a proactive nature on how they're going to do things rather than a reactive nature to how to do things. And I would argue that that's what my approach is right now, right? Like, I look forward to aging knowing the things that I know right now. But body fat does not rule who I am as a person. It does not rule for the care and self-love that, that I have for myself. Um, and I would argue that, you know, I'll end on this note. Um, we were at summer camp and I was talking, and I, I probably said this on the podcast, and I probably said this on the podcast that I did with Mike. There's no secret to Mike. There's no secret to abs. There's no secret to fit people, right? 
they work out hard, and usually they work out smart, right? And there's a lot of people that work out hard that wonder why they aren't seeing the results that they want. And oftentimes you look and they're under eating or they're training not specific for their goals. And we covered that early on. But make no mistake about it. You know, I am making a choice to not work out as much as Mike. Now, in the future, right, um, part of that choice is kind of building you to perform, right? This, you know, but I don't, you know, when I look at my stress signals and things of this nature, RHR, all that type of stuff, and these are the, some of the things that were asked us questions and maybe I can do a, another podcast on that type of stuff, but I wanted to really focus on the kind of the heavy lifting piece. But for me, you know, I really want to focus on sleep. I really want to focus on stress. I really want to focus on my family. I want to focus on kind of the bigger picture things. And so um, I know the drive that's within me. I know that, you know, when my workouts are on point as it relates to my goals, if I wanted to just be smoted up, I can get there. Um, I can tell you that, uh, you know, if I go to the beach, I don't have any problem taking off my shirt. People know that I work out. So, you know, I have a base level of fitness and I know that there's a lot of people out there that's listening to this that don't have that yet. And they go, well, I need to be more extreme than you because you have that base level of fitness and you have that self-love. I can tell you right now, you can have that self-love right now. You can start to work on you know, the activity piece right now by just walking around the block, right? And the slower that you go, the, the, the better it's going to be. That way, when you have the beast mode periods, right, you can make big jumps. That way, when you have built the runway, similar to what Christine was talking about, you can then use that runway for a much bigger deficit to see a much better result, right? And, you know, it really is that level of trial and error that you're trying to get to, to get to a space where you're reaching body composition goals, irrespective of your self-worth, right? And I'm not saying that there isn't a certain amount of vanity that plays a role within self-worth um, because, you know, I, I think I think that there probably is a strong connection. Um, but I also think that going to the extreme opposite the other way actually has a much more negative impact on your self-worth. And that's obviously what we talk about on a daily basis. So I hope this was helpful for you guys. I uh, apologize I couldn't get anybody on. And then maybe we'll be able to um, kind of cover some of that in, at a later date. Appreciate everybody listening and have a great weekend. And I'll talk to you guys later.